0: Welcome to the internal communications podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Today's guest is Russell Grossman. Even if you're vaguely familiar with the world of internal communications, you probably recognize the name. In a career spanning more than 30 years, Russell has had an impressive list of jobs. He's been head of internal communications at the BBC, director of communications at Royal Mail, Director of Communications at the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, and is currently Director of Communication at the Office of Rail and Road. Apart from the day job, he's been actively involved in IABC, Engage for Success, CIPR, the list goes on. Today, Russell is also Head of Profession for the Internal Communications Practice across government. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's 4,000 people working in communications across UK government bodies today. For those of them working in IC, Russell is ultimately responsible for their career progression and recruitment. We met at his offices in early December, a stone's throw from Covent Garden and a 1,000 office Christmas parties. I asked Russell for his advice on how IC pros can improve their chances of having a long and successful career in communications. And as you're about to hear, Russell has plenty of no-nonsense practical advice on how to make it all the way to Director of Communications. We also discussed the importance of bringing remote workers together, the difference between working in the public and private sectors and Oasis. No, not the Mancunian Britpop band, but an approach to campaign planning. But I started at the beginning, as a boy, growing up in Blackpool. What was his dream job?
1: Oh, I wanted to be an engine driver.
0: Ah, I've
1: always loved trains. That's partly why I work for the office of Rowland Road. Actually, don't tell anybody that. Um, to be honest, I, I hadn't really thought about it. I don't think I'd given any great thought to what I would wish to be when I grew up. I still haven't.
0: <laughs> You're still working on it. Right? I'm
1: still working on it. I'm still working on it. I think many people fall into a career. And I think that's particularly the case if you are in PR... If you talk to a number of people in PR, I think a lot of them will say that either they fell straight into it or they fell into a career having done something else. And so I started out my career in the Greater London Council Yes. Uh, in a PR role, press office role. I had never really thought about that. It's just where, as a graduate, you were placed. Yes. And um, I thought, hmm, this is interesting. And at that time when I was at the GLC, which was a few years ago, the GLC was actually at that time going through its phase when it did things that were perhaps a little bit unusual and strange. I ended up on the transport desk, as it were, and we were doing things that now actually are kind of regular London fare zone for example, dialer ride community transport, those sorts of things. I thought, ooh, this thing's interesting. What's it called? PR, public (laughs) relations. Okay, fine. Yeah, great.
0: So it was something very much you fell into, but there must have been a point when you thought, I'm good at this, or I enjoy this, or I'm making a difference. What was it at that point you thought, I'm in the right place, or I'm certainly in Um, the right career?
1: I'm not sure that I gave it a great deal of thought at that stage. I think if I go forward quite a long way I would agree yes you know this is a job or a career or a vocation or a role that is making a difference it's making a difference because I can see the result of what I'm doing relatively quickly right uh, relatively quickly and I think that's perhaps more the case in either internal communications or press relations and it tends to be in say some public affairs roles or uh, or strategic comms but yeah I don't think it's something that I've ever given massive thought to to be honest I have ended up serendipitously in a number of roles that when I look back I've been very fortunate to have had and have enjoyed immensely but I don't actually think I could say I had planned to be in any of them.
0: You now have a extracurricular job as well as the, I'm going to get this right, but the lead communications practice for internal communications across the government. I'm the head of profession. Head of profession. What does that mean in practice?
1: In practice, it means that I have a responsibility and oversight for just two things for all internal communicators across government. One is progression and the other is an oversight on our strategic recruitment. I think it's important to give some context. The government communications service is a service, a professional body, actually, of some four and a half thousand people operating through central government in the United Kingdom and also through many of its arm's length bodies. If we count all those people up, that's four and a half thousand people working in about 330 different organisations, all loosely connected in some way to the purpose of government. They all do different things. But the Government Communications Service brings all that together in a professional way under what's called the Modern Communications Operating Model, or MCOM. And the Modern Communications Operating Model has four elements to it. Media, digital and campaigns, that's one element. What used to be called the press office. Right. But now is much wider, recognising the importance of digital and the, the relativity of content rather than press office work per se external affairs, which is external relations other than media, strategic communications, which is the planning, insight, evaluation, and internal communications. And those are four equal disciplines. And back in I can't remember when it was actually, I was asked to take up a role of head of profession because internal communications was not just the poor relation in terms of how it was regarded, Mm -hmm. but it was also the poor relation in terms of the capability and the impact and the influence that it had across government and what it should be doing. And um, that's a role I've had probably four years, five years. I can't remember. I'm not actually sure. But my role is really one that is only successful if the heads of internal communication across government that I work with accept my role and agree with me what we should be doing. So it's a consensus thing, it's absolutely I spend uh, a small amount of time during my week bringing together especially the heads of internal communication across government departments. In fact funnily enough we met yesterday, we meet formally once a month and we talk about a professional agenda that can be as varied as I'm banging my head against this wall, how do you make the bricks softer? All the way through and uh, some of the qualities now actually of internal communications practitioners across government is remarkable, even though I say that. I take an interest in all senior recruitment appointments. The more that you're able to help particular departments route appoint the right people, the more you're going to have the right people, the more the profession is going to grow, etc. And definitely across the GCS, we are absolutely regarded as an equal profession with the other three.
0: When you're interviewing, do you have your favourite killer question up your sleeve? Do you have a particular technique when it comes to interviewing to get the right person in the right job?
1: Um, I don't think I have a particular technique. My view on interviewing is every interview that we do is is genuinely fair. I was asked yesterday relating to, you know, is such and such a shoe in for that job? And my response was no. And I think genuinely when you interview, and I'm always the kind of second person at the interview, I'm not the owning hiring manager. You are genuinely looking for the best person for that job. Genuinely looking for the best person. I think in a head of professional role, what I'm able to do is keep a running view on who is around.
0: Right. And in fact,
1: that's something that we also do formally. It's not a secret. The senior civil service members of the profession, I bring together once a quarter and we have a professional evidence-based discussion about who is around in the cohort, where do we think they should be going, even if they themselves have not thought about it, what are the gaps that we feel that we need to fill, who is poaching whom from where, and who else is in the market that we don't know about. And when you bring seven or eight people together collectively to discuss that, you get a good result.
0: That sounds excellent. If you're thinking about potentially people that might not be in the public sector at the moment, maybe Hmm. they are working in the private sector, you might want to tempt them across. What's the big difference?
1: I think there are probably two differences between the public and private sector, and I've worked in both. In the public sector, the bottom line is different. The bottom line tends not to be, well, it isn't about profit or maximising revenue, however you want to describe that. It is genuinely about public service and how could you make a difference to the citizen. To Describe that. It is genuinely about public service and how could you make a difference to the citizen. So I think when you're talking about internal communications, for colleagues who work in any particular department, that is the driver. Mm. That is the driver. I think the second difference tends to be, I think this is particularly the case I'd like to think across GCS. In the private sector, let's say you were working for Marks & Spencer. You'll have a small team in internal communications in Marks & Spencer. I will just explain. This is only an example I've just (laughs) pulled from the top of my head. And let's say you have have a, a team in Arcadia and you might have a team in Sainsbury's. These are competing companies. Yes. So you don't tend to share much. Across government, all the departments are part of one big community, absolutely committed to sharing both professional practice, what works well. I've talked about, you know, the heading head against the brick wall thing. So that catharsis. And so you have a whole that truly is greater than the sum of its parts. I don't think you find that in the private sector. And we work across the GCS, both in internal communications, but actually across all the other disciplines that I've described to ensure that collectively we do provide the best professional input to our organisations, but also in a way that builds up from a personal point of view, a person's own professional career.
0: I noticed on Twitter, I think there was a photograph of you speaking at an induction event Mm. for new communicators joining the service. What's the piece of advice you find yourself giving to new recruits over and over again?
1: So we do that once a month in GCS. Mm. The piece of advice I give most of all is, number one, be yourself. Number two, recognise that you've come into an organisation that often allows you to be yourself. And the third is that professional development point that people can spend their entire career in a government communication service role with so much different. That is both in terms of the sector that they operate in, the organisation that they work in and the particular branch of the discipline that they enjoy. The people that we most like to see at director of communication level are those that have done at least two and preferably more disciplines. So we have people in internal communications that we'd like to see do a press office role next, people in the press office role that we'd like then to do a StratCom's role, external affairs, public affairs, whatever, Um, so that people who reach the head or director of communications level have truly got an understanding of the whole discipline. And increasingly now, that includes understanding
0: what digital is about. There is a lot of talk at the moment, Part of it is me talking about it, actually, about the convergence of internal and external. And what you're describing to me is exactly that.
1: Yes, but I don't understand that as convergence.
0: Right, Okay.
1: So uh, for me, and I'm happy to be corrected, for me, convergence is where internal and external communications are all part of the same function. Right. I think internal and external comms are very distinct functions within the whole ambit of communications. The audience is different the profession, the discipline is the same. But the fact that the audience is different means your application of that profession is different. Across government, we use a very simple approach to campaign planning, which is called OASIS. Oasis yes. uh, most people have called heard of OASIS. It's one of the success measures of the GCS. It stands for Objectives, Audience, Strategy, Implementation, and Scoring. Most of our boards and exco's keep asking now for an OASIS plan. That is approach is exactly the same whether it's internal or external comms the difference on internal comms is your audience won't go away they're your colleagues they're your staff And the way in which you should understand them, the insight that you should have about them, the way in which you are able to counsel leaders in a way that they can affect a change on colleagues is different, I think, in both its intensity and direction from how you would approach a journalist about a particular story, and then that story's gone off, or how you would approach stratcoms, or how you would, for example, engage parliamentarians in a public affairs programme. So I think internal communications is distinct and different, but it is part of the bigger family where the discipline is the same.
0: So if I'm starting out in IC and I'm learning the ropes, I'm learning what's special and unique about the internal audience, the fact that they see under the bonnet of our organisation. So you can't market necessarily to them as you might market to others and their needs are quite distinct, as you say, they don't go away. Are you saying that really if I want to become a comms director, then I've got to start thinking about press, marketing, certainly digital, and that you would be encouraging people to step out of their comfort zone and try something new as well.
1: Definitely. Yes. But you wouldn't be starting out in IC. You'd be starting out in communications. Right. And we would be encouraging you, to your point about induction, we would be encouraging you right at the start to say, consider doing two years in internal communications, two years in a press office. You can't spend too long in your career before you've touched media relations. Right. Otherwise, it's too late. Internal communications, I think you can come to later on in your career, having done media relations or public affairs or whatever. I just think that the grind... (laughs) Apart from anything else, in media relations means at the lower level, certainly it's not necessarily a job for an older person. I'm sure. The grind? The grind, the long hours, the pressure, the resilience that you need to be able to build up as you discuss various topics with a journalist, the way in which you, again, gain experience through the way in which you negotiate with your leaders, maybe chief executives, maybe functional heads about mm. why they should be saying that, even though they don't want to say that. I think, you know, you need to cut your teeth on that at a younger age.
0: Right. I understand. understand. You said that initially the support of this profession was set up because IC was a little bit of the poor relation. Mm. Do you see that changing?
1: It's changed.
0: It's changed. It's changed.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say that every single organisation across government, that problem's gone away, but certainly in the main departments, internal communications is regarded as an equal. And I think that has partly been the way in which we have demonstrated in the profession, exactly as we've been talking, that we are as passionate and as professional about all the tools that you need in communication as anybody else, actually. And you can go onto the GCS website and you'll see our various and those are all there for everyone to see. It's also the case, I think, that across the industry that's the, the communications industry, I think internal communications has moved from a dark corner where it produced posters and stuff like that to a separate corner but one in the boardroom where it is correctly advising leaders on the next step that they need and mm. where leaders are themselves seeking out counsel about how they need to interact with colleagues who work in an organisation. I think those two forces, if you like, have conspired certainly in my experience, to create internal communications as an equal partner.
0: I still meet people who lament the fact that they are considered a little bit the post-men and women of their organisation, maybe to where they're still sorting and delivering messages. What's your advice to someone that, Wishes to be more of a valued partner and consultant to their business to drive performance as opposed to just sorting and delivering the messages.
1: I would say to those people look at yourself Mm -hmm. and you ask yourself why you are not valued. And in some cases, this is down to the people themselves. And it's certainly true that there are some practitioners in internal communications who actually are very happy to be the postmen and women and are not of the sort that would wish to be counselling senior leaders Mm. or would wish to be pushing themselves outside a comfort zone. Mm. And I see too many people like that, to be honest. So I would say first look at yourself and examine yourself. And instead of moaning, consider how you are going to build your own capability up. How are you building your networks? Are you as interested in the external environment of this organisation as you are in the internal environment do you know what your middle managers are worried about today are you able to have the capability to push back to let's say for example an HR manager who says could you produce this poster and ask why do you want to produce that poster what is it that you're trying to achieve and this need for resilience I see less I suppose in internal comms people who sit there and say oh I feel like i the poor relation than I do in people who might be working in media relations for whom it's pretty obvious that you push back to a journalist that you say to it doesn't have to be a senior manager it could be anyone that's about to go for an interview I'm sorry you can't say that because
0: yes absolutely changing tax slightly I noticed looking at your your very long and impressive CV that a lot of your roles presumably have involved communicating to quite dispersed workforces, mobile workforces, people not sat behind a desk. And I'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts on the best way of going about that. It comes up time and time again when communicators are sitting in their slightly corporate ivory tower, but they've got tens of thousands potentially of men and women across the country wrapping their arms around those people. Is that a challenge, just a digital challenge, a channel challenge? Is that an attitude challenge?
1: It's probably all of those. Firstly, I just want to say that I don't regard the profession as producing communicators. I've no evidence that I am any more a communicator than anybody else. I am a practitioner in communications. And I think particularly from an internal comms perspective, actually, the communicators are the leaders. Right. So I tend not to use that word. In terms of remote workers, well, Work is changing incredibly vastly. When I first came to work, everybody had a desk. It was normal to be at that desk, let's say, from nine until five, five days a week. I'm here in an organisation where if I see most of my team during most of the week, I'm doing quite well. I've got one person, for example, that lives in Birmingham and works there for two days a week. I've got somebody that lives and works in Scotland in my team. I've got other members of my team who kind of come in and out. They're out and about. And it's perfectly normal, therefore, without feeling that they're remote workers, that in a normal day you are communicating or connecting with people through lots and lots of, you know, they're all invariably digital ways. I mean, just in fact, like if I'm working in my loft room and uh, I want to speak to my wife, I just ring her. Or I (laughs) send her a WhatsApp message. What I'm saying is I think the distinction between remote workers and office workers is itself blurring. Yes. And I think that's helping us realise that the way in which we connect with each other is itself different. Having said all of that, I don't think that you can underestimate the power of face-to-face. Right. You cannot underestimate the power of face-to-face. So one of the things that we found in the Government Communications Service, the GCS members are distributed all over the country, Mm. is that people actually get quite lonely. Particularly, you know, they may be on the end of a Skype or on the end of an email or on the end of of a WhatsApp, But that personal contact is something that people crave. And we deliberately create face to face events to bring remote workers into a place we've just held two they've been called ic space live so ic space i'll give a promo for ic space is the specific website for internal comms practitioners across government because it's publicly funded and because it's on the internet anybody can look up the ic space it's got
0: some great resources you
1: just need to type in the ic space in google and you'll find it Although, interestingly, there is no space between IC and space on the IC space. Anyway, (laughs) but twice a year, we physically bring people together. In fact, we've just done it last month because people crave that interaction. And it's an investment. You know, it's absolutely an investment. But what you get from that investment, in my view, is well worth it.
0: Absolutely. We still know, don't we, after Yammer and Workplace by Facebook and everything else that face-to-face is still the most powerful form of communication so that makes perfect sense to me i noticed you're still involved with iabc engaged for success cipr IOIC. i keep i
1: keep my hand in and you keep these your hand spaces. in um, a little busy these days with Her majesty's government but i keep my hand in yes
0: is this purely altruistic on your part in terms of giving back you know, in terms of your knowledge and your experience and your support? Or are you personally getting something from those extracurricular volunteering roles as well?
1: Well, it's a bit of both. It is a bit of both. I think I'm probably at a stage without sounding too arrogant where a lot of what I might be offered by different organisations, such as those you mentioned, I've probably been there and done that. I definitely keep my hand in because actually, you know, the networks, I've just talked about meeting people and all of that physically, the networks that you gain in these organisations are invaluable. The main reason, I suppose, why I, particularly I joined IABC originally, was to gain more information from an international perspective because I wasn't getting it here. But over time, it was about giving something back. Mm -hmm. It was about giving something back and enjoying it in the process, I will say. But I think that there is a duty on people when they get to a certain stage in their career to do that, personally. Yes,
0: I agree. I think that's very important. A big plug for IABC, especially the World Conference, which Definitely. I think is absolutely amazing and everyone should go as often as they can. So you've obviously must have had some challenging times and challenging moments. You've talked about resilience. On a deeply personal level, what is it that keeps you going? How do you find that resilience during the most challenging times? Um
1: I tend to be an optimist rather than anything else. And so if something doesn't go wrong, I think my general view is next time it'll probably go right.
0: So everything's a learning opportunity. Uh, And
1: everything's a learning opportunity. (laughs) So sometimes I'm asked, what is the worst day I've ever had? So I do have a a pick list to choose from. I can particularly think in recent times of the 12th of September, 2011, when I was Group Director of Communications at the Business Department, and we had gathered together our three strata of senior managers, and we'd gathered them together all in a place to have one of those away day things, you know, that you have. And we're talking about quite a few 150 odd senior managers. And for purposes of demonstration, I'd say that these were graded one, two and three, where three is the best and one is the worst, although I suppose it depends on which end of the spectrum you're looking at. So we were bringing them all together and we were bringing them together just after we had managed to make quite a few people, not redundant, but because we didn't eventually do that, but we'd managed to make quite a few people displaced. Right. Quite a few people And I think what we'd not really understood by putting this event in September after the summer, which itself was after quite a number of months of stress and hassle, was that these particular managers, particularly the ones at the one level, had been shat on from above and pricked from below. Uh Uh-oh. And they hadn't forgotten this over the summer. So to cut a long story short, we'd organised them in three different groups and... What happened after about 45 minutes was I was in group number two. We received a delegation from group number one saying, we think this sucks. Uh -uh. That's not actually what they said. It was a little bit ruder than that. Slightly ruder. And we think that you're all having a great time and you've consigned us to some pithy little exercise that we don't really engage with. And unwritten was, P.S., we're not taking part. Now, the reason why we brought all these pieces together... On the same day was that the three level directors general, as they're called, were in a lock-in for some very grand purpose. So timidly, I went along to the permanent secretary and I said, Look, I think we've got a bit of a problem here. We went down to the big room and all the way around the big room was written on these flip charts. Let me just call it hate mail Uh all the way around. These were by people who were senior leaders in themselves. But, hey, from their point of view, this was a senior leaders conference and they were the junior senior leaders. So they weren't acting as senior leaders in this conference. Their role was actually to say, oi. Anyway, let's just say that the day didn't go entirely as As planned. planned. (laughs) Now, for those people who have organised away days, you know, it's actually very difficult for them to go wrong. It is really. If you've planned the logistics, you've got the flowers at the end of the day and the food's OK, it's actually quite difficult for them to go wrong. Absolutely. But when they do go wrong, they go spectacularly Spect- wrong. And this one went spectacularly wrong. But actually, the worst part of the exercise wasn't that day, it was the day after I turned up to the executive committee meeting and the people who were at the senior level, shall we say, just laid into me. And I thought, well, next time it's going to be better, isn't it? And uh, that's why I tend to remember the 12th of September. September. But the following week, I was back to normal. So um, I think you've got to be resilient. I almost go as far to say that if you work in communications at a level, whether you know internal or external, I think you have to have a level of resilience. Now, can you learn that? I suppose you can. Is it innate? Definitely. Is it innate to your character? Definitely. One of the things I often teach my team, I've learned the hard way is that if you go for 10 out of 10 in whatever you do, often you end up as a red splat on the wall. Far better to go for 6 out of 10 and recognise that you're never going to get 100%. That kind of psychology, that kind of mentality, where you recognise what your limits are, Mm. you recognise that actually there will be another day, those are the kinds of things that helps you recognise that actually you can be resilient.
0: It's going off track slightly, but do you get the chance to pick your leader? Have you done that throughout your career? No. No.
1: I've never had the chance to do that. I've always moulded myself to a different leader. I think that's a very important thing. We know that particularly in upper echelons of communications, if you're not careful, you do go with the leader. You leave the organisation when the leader does. In this particular organisation that we're sat in at the moment, I've worked in three years with three different chief executives and a fourth at some time next year. I think it's very important to be able to meld yourself to individual stars because, again, you learn and you pick up as you go along that way.
0: So lots of listening by the sounds
1: <clears> of it. Oh, listening is a key trait for all communicators. I mean, communications comes from the Latin Communicare, which means to share. Now, share means that there must be at least a two-way implication. I talk, you talk, I listen. Listening is incredibly important. We don't do enough listening.
0: I always find it strange that on CEO jobs for chief executives they ask for lots of different skills but superb listening skills are really listed i'll
1: tell you an interesting technique that was once suggested to me which i have used uh, which is called the silent cafe in which you you go down into your canteen or other general communal area and you buy yourself a coffee and you just sit there And you just observe what goes on and listen to conversations. I mean, not from the point of view of eavesdropping. Listening is not just about, you know, sound. It's very much observing people, observing who's going with whom. What's the body language? Why is that person here? That looks interesting. Mm. Um, I often say that from an internal perspective, you need to be in and visible, not invisible. Mm. So if you're at your desk more than 50% of your time, well, why? Your audience is out there. I often say that to some of my internal comms people who don't like the fact that I say it to them, but it's true. Similarly, as a practitioner, you need to be agile, not fragile. It goes back to our resilience point. You need to be able to recognise that you mould your style to the principal that you're working with.
0: And my final question is, what's the next big challenge for internal communications?
1: I think it's to believe in itself more. I actually think that internal communications as a discipline is now in a place that it was yearning for for years, which is to have competent, credible practitioners that are equally regarded in the right places as external communications.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Thank you very much, Russell. It's been a fantastic conversation. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Communications Podcast. In the show notes, you'll find links to the various sites and reference materials that Russell and I discussed. So take a look on the IC Podcast page on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk, A-B-C-O-M-M. I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this show, but in particular, your ideas for future guests. Now, there's lots of ways to get in touch, Please rate the podcast or comment on iTunes. You can share your views on Twitter. We are at abthinks or simply email me directly. icpodcast at abcom.co.uk To make sure you don't miss another episode, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. All that remains is for me to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the icy podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Bye for now, and until we meet again, happy communicating. And remember, it's what's inside that counts.